That wasn't so bad, was it? Huh? Are you ready for this? You know, when you think about it, I mean, it's a, it's a crazy thing we're aspiring to do to speak the words of God. I mean, you know, who can claim that? I mean, you know, you've got all religions around the world. You've got different people having different takes on what God says about reality, whether there is a God or isn't a God, and are there a multiplicity of gods. You have to understand at the very core of what we're going to be talking about this morning is monotheism, that there is one God. Now, there's in three parts, Father, Son, and Spirit, but there's one God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's actually the very foundation of all missional ideologies. What's a missional ideology? Something that would provoke me to go and talk about, you know, Jesus or the reality of a spiritual realm or the kingdom with maybe somebody I'm playing pickleball with. Or somebody that lives down the street or somebody that works in my office or the foundation of all of that is monotheism. We've talked about that at various points. If there is one God, then someday all people will know that there's one God and that should begin now. It's called the Great Commission. It's the Great Commission. Now, sometimes I feel, uh, to be honest with you, I feel, you know, I talk a lot, so much about mission, so much about evangelism. I mean, can I balance this thing out? And it's one of the things, uh, one of the reasons that I go line by line, verse by verse, and we'll take a chapter or a book or something and we'll go through it. It, it makes sure that what Jesus said and the proportion that he gave to evangelism is accurate. So when we're going through the Gospel of Luke, the reason it keeps re-emerging is because Jesus keeps talking about it. So it must be important. It must be important. So I know many of you know well the stories of Eldad and Medad. And everybody looks with some... <laughs> Let me talk a little bit about Eldad and Medad this morning. Go all the way back to Numbers chapter 11. We're going to start in Luke chapter 10. We're only going to pick up a small portion And then we're going to unpack it a little bit. What is Jesus trying to communicate to his disciples? Now, what we've seen in chapter 9, he's he's been transfigured before, well, three. And then the 70 that were kind of close, well, not the 70 yet. Moses was, though. Moses took up three, and they were overshadowed. And, but they couldn't even come as close as Moses could when they went up on Mount Sinai. But he also said, take the 70 elders and encamp them around and take them up with you. But they can only go so far. And God came down and made his presence known. And then Moses was shining. And then strangely, Jesus took them up on a different mountain. And, that, and, and he was transfigured before them with three. And then he comes down in a point seventy. Now, do you think that's by coincidence? I hope that you're understanding that Jesus is the new Moses. Moses was representative. uh, He was a representative of the law, the Mosaic law, we say. And when he came down, they failed so miserably that he shattered the commandments. This is what we've been talking about. But then when Jesus descends uh, Mount Zion a little bit later after the transfiguration, he came down not shattering the commandments, but shattering his own body. And in fact, the blood speaks better than the blood of Abel, right? What does that mean? Then Jesus is crying out for mercy and Moses, right? We saw 3,000 died when Moses came down and they failed the law. But then when Jesus descends a mountain, shattered body, that blood is crying out in a miraculous way. Don't hold this against them, Father. Show mercy on Show mercy on it. And then what happened at the first preaching of the very first sermon? 3,000 people came to life, spiritual life. Do you think that's by coincidence? I hope, again, you're seeing patterns. Jesus is really being very specific to the pattern given to Moses, but he's fulfilling it in a way that's not just the law. He's fulfilling it in a new covenant way that screams mercy. And I'm so happy, so happy that he does. And did, but still does. I don't just say did, but he does. Today, that's available to you. So Luke chapter 10, we're going to look here at verses 1 and 2. This is the picking of the 70, not unlike what Moses, and we'll see this in a minute. Uh, verse, chapter 10, verse 1. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others. 
and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, they're just so few. And then he says this, therefore, kind of a strange word in the NASB, beseech. Beg is really what that word means. Beg the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So it's no surprise that Jesus picked 70. Why? Because Moses had picked 70. Let's go back to Numbers 11 and pick this up because I, you're gonna, I hope you get this because this is powerful. And I don't care how weak you think you are spiritually, how you know, far you are from God. God wants to do what he's done here. He wants to do with you. That's the premise this morning. He wants you. Now, I'm going to just seed a little bit ahead here. He wants you. Are you ready for this? This is going to be wild. Some of you don't get up and leave yet. Bar the door back there. He wants you to prophesy. Now, I know that sounds wild, and we're going to talk about what prophecy is and what it is not. It involves prediction, but it is not. It's, it's, that's kind of a rarity anymore, predictive prophecy, but prophesying is just being inspired by God and speaking his words. I'm prophet, whether you're aware of it this morning, I'm prophesying to you and I'm confident of it because I'm reading the word and the word prophesies. It's inspired. It speaks to you and it can transform your life and your destiny, not only on this earth, but for all of eternity. Them's fighting words. But they're good words and they're true words. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 11. This is in the very beginning of your book, the first five books we've talked about. This is the Torah. This is the the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book prior to Deuteronomy, closing out the Torah. Numbers chapter 11. We're going to read verses 14 through 17. Are you ready? Now this is, uh, catch this because it's so important. I alone, this is Moses speaking, I alone am not able to carry all of this people because it is too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. I just can't do this anymore, Moses is saying. Uh, If I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my own wretchedness. Now, what is Moses saying here? He's come out of Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea. They've gone into the wilderness. They're, they're, they're there, and, and, and he just says, I can't take this amount of people. Some speculate over a million people, 600,000 men, but uh, there, were, there were a lot of people, and they were traveling through, and they had all kinds of complaints, and they were griping and murmuring, and, and it just all kinds of horrific things were happening, and Moses is trying to intercede on their behalf, and yet, well, they're just, they're just helpless. They just can't get it right, and he goes, it's just too burdensome for me. Now, was it too burdensome for Jesus? Well, no, he's a new Moses. But he did realize that in his physical body, there is no way that he was going to be able to reach everything that the prophets had seen, a light to the nations, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this message of one God, one beautifully holy God creating mankind in his image, this one God. We have to reach the world, and Jesus came, but immediately he started the process. He chose 12, and then he chose 70, and then even had a three inner cohort of three, Peter, James, and John, that he took up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He is doing some really in-depth training here. He's patterning himself right off of Moses here. You have to see this. It wasn't that it was a burden, it was an impossibility for Jesus to be in his physical body, uh, being both man and God and reaching the world. He came to die for the world, but to reach them, he was going to have to do something really radical, and he was going to have to put the Spirit in the people 
so that they could be inspirited, inspired, so that they could have the spirit inside of them to take the message to the most remote places in the world, even places like La Quinta, California, Indian Wells, California. Can you imagine halfway around the globe, how would Jesus have done all of that, had all those personal conversations, and he immediately begins to, begins to choose, and he begins to, well, he starts Amway, right? He just starts it, and he's, he's just getting distributors, and, and they get more distributors and more distributors, and, and all of a sudden... Well, it's not toilet paper being spread around the world. It's the message of the kingdom. It's the message of the kingdom. Now, notice here, verse 16. The Lord therefore said to Moses, now don't miss this, because this is the first, this passage is the first time that the word prophesy is even used in the Bible. The very first time. You need to know that. The Hebrew word here is nabah. And it's to, again, to speak inspired words. They can be predictive. But they can also just be simple discourse. To prophesy is not, hey, let's see, uh, there's a woman in a red dress here, and she lives at this address. The Lord is speaking to me. Lord, speak to me. You know, it's not a carnival show. It's you being inspired and then speaking the words out. If you're speaking a Bible verse to someone who doesn't know Jesus, you're prophesying. It's simple discourse. Don't try to make this some charismatic, non-charismatic thing or whatever. This is prophesying. It's the very first passage where God uses the word, inspires the word prophesy, prophesy. The Lord said to Moses, Gather to me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting. Here we have it. And let them take their stand there with you. Now, Moses has no idea why, but he does. He he calls the 70 to come to the tent of meeting, representative of the place and presence of God um, in their midst. And then, and then God says this, and I will take of the Spirit who is upon you, and I will put him, personal him, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, personhood, upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you will not bear it alone. Now, does this sound familiar to you in a New Testament context? Of course it does, because at Pentecost, on in this final of the of the spring feast, 50 days later, Penta, uh, they didn't even know what it means. And if you ask many Jewish people today, what's Pentecost? A lot of them said, I don't know. It really doesn't have any deep meaning for us. It really doesn't. Why? But it has meaning to us and it had meaning to God because the first fruits and all that and the Passover lamb's been slaughtered at Passover. And then 50 days later, the spirit is poured out upon all mankind absolutely fulfilling the prophecies of later prophets of the Old Testament who said, one day I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all mankind. Not just the 70, upon all mankind. But here it is. First things first. Jesus has got some followers, and now he's going to begin to train them. And how are they going to be trained if they're not inspired? If the very spirit that was on Moses, uh, how, how are they going to do this? They can't. You cannot give out what you do not possess. Do you possess the Spirit? That's all Christianity is. You have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you. Jesus died, was buried and resurrected. He took that blood. He poured it out on the mercy seat. That made things right with God. And then he poured out that Spirit. Joel had seen this hundreds of years in advance. And he now pours out that Spirit, which you are both hearing and seeing. And that's what Peter preached in the very first sermon. I'm going to take the spirit who's upon you and I'm going to put him upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you will not bear it alone. And then, verse 25, then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and he took of the spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon him, they prophesied. Very first time in the entire Old Testament or Tanakh that the word prophesy is used. They prophesied, but they did not do it again in that moment. And then two men had remained in the camp. 
Evidently, this, these two guys were part of the 70, and we don't know why they hadn't got gathered at the tent of meeting with the other seven, with the other 68, but they were still back. Did they have permission to do this? Did they, were they just lazy? We don't know. They were, just, they were back somewhere in the camp. They hadn't come to the tent of meeting as Moses had required and requested them to do. They remained in the camp, and the name one of, of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them, and now they were among those who had been registered but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, his right-hand man, the attendant of Moses from his youth said, Moses, my Lord, restrain these people. Restrain them. And then Moses says something very profound and predictive, I believe, of Pentecost. And not only Pentecost, today. This is a prophecy today. This is God's heart and Jesus' heart today. And here it is. And Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon all of them. Now, that was unfathomable, unfathomable that, first of all, that he would pour out his spirit on these 70, but they began to prophesy. It was an indication of being inspired. It was unfathomable, unfathomable that, that, that these people would come together as the Lord had instructed them. Uh, the 120 gathered, and then what looked like tongues of fire were on their heads, and they began to speak in other languages, glorifying God. And all these Jews who'd come from the diaspora all around were hearing them praising God in their own language. During this is the after, right after the you know first sermon, you know, and or right prior to the first sermon, and they were filled with the Spirit and things that they didn't understand before. They immediately be, it's like blindfolds began to come off, and they began to understand things that they hadn't understood. And, and the very man who had denied even knowing Jesus, begins to preach a sermon. And, and again, what happened? 3,000 people, they didn't die this time. They came alive. 3,000 people were saved. It's amazing because of the Spirit. Again, this was always the plan of God. He wants to live in you. He wants you to be a prophet, to prophesy. Not pre, please try to extract yourself from your preconceived ideas about you know, whether this has ceased from anymore. God just wants to inspire you, live in you, and speak through you and use you for you to be a living sacrifice. Does he live in you? Got milk? Got the spirit? Do you have the spirit this morning? You can have the spirit. Repent. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall receive, what? The gift of the Spirit. You will now be inspired. And in and through that, you can go back and climb down your mountain and go into the valley of chaos and be an impactful person. A light in a dreary world. What was Jesus doing? Well, he was, he was, training, he was training people systematically, very intentionally, According to the pattern of Moses, before he left planet Earth, it's better that I go away, Jesus said, because then I'm going to send the Spirit. And what did we just learn? Why, why would we restrain? Joshua, why would I restrain them, Moses said? I would that all the people would be filled with the Spirit. Now, for then the Spirit would come upon, but now it doesn't just come upon us. It actually comes into us after the atonement, after Jesus shed his blood. Things are all perfectly set up for you to have the Spirit living inside of you. I don't know that I can, I've been preaching and teaching this for decades, and it still, ah, it makes the hair on the back of my, what? Live on the inside of me? It's, uh, is this kind of like an influence? No, a person living in me, the person of the Spirit the Holy Spirit of the Godhead. We cannot take this lightly. You cannot take this lightly. Paul, 
said this similar. Don't grieve the spirit that you've been, you've been, it's been put in you as a pledge. You've been sealed with the spirit. Don't grieve the spirit. You have a person living on the inside of you. Timothy also told Paul, 2 Timothy 2.2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men and women, I would add, who will be able to teach others always. Also, I, can I just tell you, what is, what is Church of the Red Door? Church of the Red Door is somewhere where we come together on Sundays, but what we really are is we have all kinds of outposts all over, well, not just the valley, but we have people listening now. In fact, the far majority of our people now aren't even in attendance. They, they listen. They could be in Montana or Chicago or Dallas or whatever. Where these outposts, many of you are here for a few months and then you leave. And, and, and the, but these outposts, even here in the valley, you know, uh, whether it be a links group or, a, or a something in your neighborhood or something at your office, and we want to expose you. But your outposts, why? Because you're inspired. You have an opportunity to go out and have a profound impact. And then we just come back I, Sundays and we say, what's been going on with you? Oh, it's you can't believe the stories. And sure, you can invite your friends, but... You know, this isn't an attractional model of church, meaning it's just a model of a Sunday if we, you know, and we go deep into this. My, my heavens, we're talking about Eldad and me dad. You're digging pretty deep into the, you know, back into numbers here. So what is the beauty? beauty? Uh, did you notice that he sent them out two by two? He sent them out in pairs. What's the, what's the beauty in that? What's the beauty of doing ministry together? I'm just telling you, if you've done ministry together, you know what the beauty is. In fact, it's indescribable. These are my most profound relationships. Now, my family, I consider us a missional unit. My immediate, my wife, my, my kids, you know, to the degree I consider us, and they're learning, and my, you know, my daughter Tess is here, and she's learning, and you know, but we're, we're a missional unit, but so are you, my family. Who are my father and my mother and my brother and sisters, Jesus? Oh, your mother and your kid, you know, your brothers are outside. Who are my father and my mother and my brother and my sisters? Well, you're also my family. And we do ministry together. We do ministry. What does that mean? We're inspired and we speak out the words of God in every place that we go. We don't just come here and then hope people come to church. People aren't coming to church anymore, really. I mean, but boy, they might come and just join you for coffee in your neighborhood if you, you, know, if you invite them, if you, in, if you go out into their lives that may be chaotic and you invest yourselves in them. There's also a certain uh, safety factor. And I don't mean from physical predators or people who, well, maybe if, if we were in the Middle East or maybe if we were in places that, and maybe the America will become that at some point. I don't know. But there's a certain spiritual safety as well. You know, I found that when I am on mission, I'm engaged in the things of God, sin just, I don't think of it as much. When I'm not on mission and I'm not engaged with other people missionally, sin is just ever there. It just is, and it is both ways, but it's more prevalent. It's more, I don't know, there's something, I don't, I'm not thinking of any sin right now at all. I'm not even Maybe pride now, but you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm just not, I'm not drawn. I mean, I'm in the, we're in the middle of worship. When I'm worshiping, I, there's a good chance I'm not sinning, you know, when, I, when I'm here. And may, hopefully the Spirit is speaking and I'm prophesying uh, an inspired from the Lord kind of message that will impact you. And in doing so, what happens? It, well, I'm not sinning. I mean, there's a certain spiritual safety when you're on mission. If you're just out with friends and everybody's good people and you're just going from thing to thing to thing to thing, it's hard. It's hard. Well, there's a, there is a spiritual safety in that. It's also, uh, you've heard me talk about this, developing relationships for all of eternity. Can I just take you quickly to Luke chapter 16? We're going to kind of jump ahead in our survey of the gospel of Luke. We're going to talk a little bit about the unrighteous steward. It's a very interesting par parable, and I'm going to do it pretty quickly. So bear with me. I'm going to read this pretty quickly. But I just make a point of Jesus in this parable. He's really adamant about being wise. Now, think this through. 
Don't have it as a nice idea in the back of your mind that's not acted upon. Let me say that again. Do not allow partnership in ministry in whatever capacity it is to be a nice idea in the back of your mind. Take it and act on it. Ask the Lord, who, how, where, what can I do? It doesn't have to even be in the context. It doesn't have to have our stamp of approval. I mean, you just go out and ha- start an outpost. Start something out in, out in culture, in your neighborhood, somewhere, anything. Be a light. Get some other people. Say, let's just start taking the food to people you know, that live in our gated community somewhere or whatever. Let's just take food. Let's, let's think this through. Let's be very intentional, not just... Not an idea. Don't make this an idea. Make it practical, orthopraxy, not just, not just your orthodoxy. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Now listen to what he says. This is, it's hard to understand, but uh, chapter 16, verse 1. Now Jesus was also saying to his disciples, that's us, if you're a follower of Jesus. There was a rich guy who had a, a manager, and this manager was reported to him as a squander in his possessions. And he called him and said, what is this that I hear about? You give an account for your management, for you, you can't be a manager anymore. Evidently, he was an unrighteous guy. He was falling down on the job. So the manager said to himself, self, that's in my own ad, what, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? He didn't say, God, what should I do? Self, what should I do? You know, and the self says, well, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg and you know, I'll tell you what I'll do. Uh, when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me, welcome me into their homes. And, and he summoned each one of his master's debtors. He did not have the right to do this. This is even more unrighteous behavior. He began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, well, a hundred measures of oil. And he said, take your bill, sit down, and write out 50. In other words, you're good, you write 50, and we're clean. Well, he had no authority to do that whatsoever. What's he doing? And he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, well, 100 measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write out 80. And his master, but catch this, his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in their relation to their own kind than the sons of light. What Jesus is saying is that people who are kingdom people don't think it through very deeply. They keep it in nice, abstract, theological terms in the backs of their minds. Memories in the corners of my mind, right? And they don't act on it. Be shrewd. Think it through. Where, where's the Lord positioned you? What, what are your interests? What, what, what platform do you have? Who, what people are you connected to? And I'm going to tell you in a minute how we can effectively do that. In closing, but, and then Jesus says this, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by the means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, not if, they will invite you into eternal dwellings. What is Jesus saying here? Think this through. When you partner with other people in ministry, I've got a dear friend of mine who I'm going to bring up in a minute, uh, Dennis Darville, who's here. And Dennis is now, for, for you that are on the Lynx Daily Devotional, he's our new senior editor. Remember we talked about Jeff Hopper. We saw his, his, his talk just weeks before he went to be with his Jesus, his king. We were partners for 20 years. It was a hard loss. But Dennis has stepped in. He's our Southeast Region Director for links and he's here and we've been spending some good time and talking things through in the studio doing, creating some new things it's amazing how much fun I have with him you know we went to eat Mexican food on you know the other side of the tracks the other night and we couldn't have imagined we could have gone to a five star in the middle of some you know where and we were had just a little old, you know, I introduced him to this thing called gorritos, which are little peppers, the shrimp, and you put some little some hot sauce in. He goes, I've never had anything like this. And we just laughed. And, but why? We could have done that as friends. But when you do it as ministry friends and you're living life together, this is what he's saying. Make friends for yourself now with your stuff. People in the world are more shrewd than you kingdom people. They think this through. He's not praising the unrighteous steward. In the terms of his unrighteousness, he's just saying he's thinking it through. And we don't think it through. Do you realize that you're going to live for eternity with people? Do you want to be invited into eternal dwellings? 
Do you know people missionally enough here that you've made these deep spiritual missional connections that they will go, oh, you got to come over to my place? We don't think it. We think of clouds and kind of hope heaven's out there somewhere. And Jesus is just saying, earthly, earthbound people, they're more shrewd. They think it through better than kingdom people. It should not be that way. I will tell you, I have learned to let this drive me in my, in my decisions, who I'm around, what I do, who I connect with, what that looks like. I'm very intentional. I don't do it perfectly, not even close, but I have it in my brain and I do act on it. Way to go, me. I'm, I, think about it. Think it through. And that's all Jesus is saying. And finally, it's just a tremendous, tremendous source of joy. Now, if all these things are true, what we just said, it's joyful and it's protective. And why don't we do it? Because we have our own agendas. Why are the labors few? The, uh, the harvest is so, oh, it's so plentiful. But the laborers, they're, they're just, I can't get anybody to go labor with me. I, I, the labors are so few. Agendas, teaching, people don't teach about it. So people say, well, I kind of privatize my own religion, you know. I like to keep it to myself. Well, that's just bad teaching because Jesus says don't keep it to yourself. You put yourself up on a mountain. You're light to the world. I'm the light, but if it's in you, it's shining out of you. Your face is glowing. Faith, people just a lot of times don't have faith. Well, I can't do this. I just, you know. I don't know what to say. They're going to ask me a question I don't know. Can you love people? Then they ask you a question. Well, I don't know, but I, I know somebody who does. I've got, And then you have a little outpost over here in your community, and maybe you take him over to Randy Linticum because you live over in the Trilogy, Polo Trilogy in that community. And, well, Randy might know. You know, I mean, you don't have to be a super scholar. We should all be trying to learn more. So, But there's just things you can do. It's amazing. People just have agendas. This will encroach on my agenda. I, I, I envisioned my life looking like this when I retired, and I'm, we're going to do this and this and this and this, and we'll sprinkle God into it a little bit. And Jesus says, no, you just got to abandon all of it and just follow me and trust me that this is going to lead to abundant life. Just trust me. Trust me that this is going to be better. You may not think it's going to be better. Trust me that it will be better. In so many unexpected ways that you'll never be able to even understand it. And then why did Jesus say, beg, plead, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers? I'll never forget as long as I live. And at first when he said it, I was kind of like, well, that's weird. A guy told me when I, you know, this is way years ago, multiple decades ago. I started a, we started a new fellowship and it was the second one I ever did. It was a Bermuda Dunes Country Club. And we had Wally Armstrong and, and, and Jim Hiskey and they came and, and uh, they, they set in on this group, and I was in my late 20s, and I was leading a group of, you know, high-level kind of characters in there, you know, and some narrowly wells. And uh, we were all, including myself, and we were there, and he, he just kind of got some tears. And, and he said something I never to this day have forgotten. He turned to Wally. He goes, Wally, do you remember when we used to walk the fairways begging the Lord to send laborers into the harvest? And then here we were years later. And men in that fellowship, it was a men's group. We didn't have a women's group at that time. It was just a men's group. Many of those men came to know Jesus. Many of them were discipled. And, but they were pleading, begging, begging. That's what that Greek word means. Deomahi in the Greek. It means to beg. Lord, I'm begging you for labor. Do you, do you know how I pray? I pray in this church. Lord, I'm begging you. To send people intentionally. They don't have to have just, if they come here and this is an important place for them to be, but I beg you to send them back into their gated community, into their office building, into their school, into their, wherever they come across, wherever they have connection, I beg you that they would see themselves as spirit poured out people who can prophesy, meaning they can speak the words of God that will lead to transformation in people's lives. I'm begging you. We had a National Links staff meeting the other day. We do it once a month now. And so all of our 
area directors, region directors, and I said, look, guys, and women, men and women, I said, this is my prayer. We have to pray, beg God for new laborers. We need to double our staff. That's one example. Lord, I'm begging you, Church of the Red Door, that we can grow. Why? Just so we can, so we can say, ah, we got a big church. I couldn't care less, big, small. I want effective. I don't care about the size. But I'm asking you, I'm begging you for laborers. Lord, would you send out laborers? Well, why does Jesus beg? Well, listen, I'll tell you exactly why Jesus begs. Because, And this tells us, you want to know what Jesus' heart is? If Jesus lives in you, this is your heart. His heart beating through you. Matthew 9, 35. We're coming to a close here. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, there was a guy coming down and his body was shattered so that his blood would cover you and you'd be okay with God again. Not Moses who came down, right? And he shattered the commandments and 3,000 people died. This is, we, we, we don't go with that message. That's legalism. We go with the message of, no, God made every, Jesus made everything good with God. Just follow him, believe in him, trust in him, be baptized in his name, be a Jesus person. Jesus was going through the cities and well, he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness and seeing the people, and I've preached on this before, some of you will remember, he felt compassion for them. Why? Because they were distressed and dispirited. What is dispirited? Maybe they didn't have the spirit. They're people without the spirit. Oh, but they're nice people, Jeff. You got to understand, they're really nice people. He'd give all kinds of money. They have a big foundation. They do all kinds. They're dispirited. That's offensive to me. We're all, aren't, can't we all just get along and everybody, it's all just, it's all just. No, Jesus was narrow. He was wide, but he was narrow. They were dispirited. Oh, but Jeff, you don't understand. They're just fine, fine people. Some of the nicest people I know. And they're so good looking. Uh, whatever it is. We have all kinds of things run through our mind. Jesus, see, he sees differently. They were dispirited. Like sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. That's how he saw the masses. Didn't matter whether they were in Pharisaical garb, splendor of the Sadducees who were complicit with the Romans and had power and authority and didn't matter any of that. Oh, but they're at this club. They're, this is a very exclusive club. Doesn't matter. Are they do they have the spirit, or are they dispirited? Then he said to his disciples, "The harvest is plentiful." Oh, he used it again. And the workers are few. Therefore, beg the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Why should we care? Because Jesus has compassion. See, that's one of the the greatest ways that you'll know that you're saved when you begin to have compassion on people that don't know him. You'll, you'll risk your reputation. You'll risk it. It won't bother you. You'll go into ministry when you don't know how you're going to pay the bills if you're a young person. You, how's all this going to work? It doesn't matter. You care. And before you didn't, you just... You might feign it, but you really didn't care. But now you care. You're saved. That's the Lord in you, his compassion in you. And then finally, that word, compassion, it means that he was gutted. It, it deals with the bowels. Jesus didn't, I have compassion. We would say, I'm gutted. I feel like I'm being disemboweled. Because I see my friend and I see the angst and the chaos. And, and all, what do I have for him? Jesus. Jesus. So why does God involve us in closing? I don't know. I really don't know. Why didn't he just come to people in dreams and visions and miracles and lead them all? Why does he involve us in the process? Why the 70? Why the 12? Why the 3? Why, why did the Gentiles get the Spirit? 
The Jews got it at Pentecost, and then some, many of the Jewish people got it at Pentecost. But then in Acts chapter 10, the, the, some of the Gentiles were received. They, they went from dispirited to spirit-empowered, Cornelius. Well, yeah, it connects us together. We've talked about that. It's a source of incredible fun. When Jesus said, I came to give life more abundantly, I say fun. I like having fun. Yeah, but you're religious. You can't have fun. I have fun. I have fun. I love it. I think there are reasons beyond even our ability to understand. I, I, I think that God has reasons to utilize us that are so far. I think that it, it, it gives us a feeling of the very the nature of of the kingdom, the future kingdom, a foretaste, if you will. And then lastly, I want to bring up Dennis. We're just going to talk about, quickly, prayer. And the reason I'm going to bring Dennis, go ahead and come on up here. Randy, do you have a microphone? Or I think it's, is it right here? Is this hot? Hot. This is my friend, Dennis. Good morning, church. We have fun. I've known Dennis for uh, 35, 30, almost 37 years, 36 years. 36 years. Uh, we've been through some <coughs> ups. We've been through some downs together. Uh, we've made some radical mistakes, but we've, we're intentional. And now, at this season in our lives, which is later than it was when we first began, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but prayer, why, why does God involve us in prayer? What, what, why prayer? That's the question. And, and Dennis has been, he's re-energized me in prayer. He really has. And there's some things as a pastor. He was the vice president of Southeastern Seminary for a period of time. He was also in the golf business. He's a perfect links guy. For, you know, he's just perfect. But, but there's something about prayer that, that hit you a number of years back that just transformed you. And it's kind of like, I've been preaching this for years, but, you know, I should probably practice it. Is that... Yeah. Give us some insight there. Well, there's much more than I could, you know, say just in a limited amount of time, but just to cut to the chase, uh, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, early on says this, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so I'm 65, and I've been in ministry since I was 21, right after graduating college. And I've preached a million sermons on prayer. And it's not that I didn't pray somewhat, but I was so inconsistent and so shallow in my praying. And it really wasn't. I'm, I would like to say I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I'm really not. I, looking back over my life, I'm... It's become very apparent to me that the Lord allows me to fail, and then he redeems it, and then I get to tell you what a miserable failure I am and how great he is. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't until about six years ago that I really learned how to pray. And now, I, to be frank, I, I can't imagine life without prayer. You know, it was the great Puritan Matthew Henry who once said, a man who lives without prayer is a man who lives without God in the world. Now, he didn't mean that in some legalistic way, as if you don't have the greatest prayer life in the world, you won't know God or walk with God. He just meant there is a place in the Spirit that if your life is without prayer, you're just missing out on so much. And for me, for my wife and I, what it boiled down to was, and I think if you've been around the church at the Red Door for any time. You, you probably saw my son a few months ago uh, preach virtually to you, Jonathan Durbel, who's 37 now. Uh, but 15 years ago, this tall, very good-looking, healthy young man who had moved to New York called me one day and said, Dad, I'm very sick. And that began a 15-year journey to try and find answers uh, to see my son healed, and there were no answers forthcoming. So about four and a half years ago, my son, who's 6'2", 175 pounds, had dwindled to 108 pounds, and his body had gone into starvation, and we couldn't find answers, and he was dying. And 
about 18 months ago, the same thing happened. He dwindled back down to 108 pounds and was dying. And it's a long, longer story than I have time to tell you about this morning, but we ended up at the UNC hospital, and miracle of miracles and the providences of God. Uh, the Lord brought us a doctor after 15 years of, I don't know, 40-plus doctors, 12-plus states, uh, untold amount of money trying to find answers. The Lord brought precisely the one doctor who could diagnose my son's problem. And now my son's six too, and I call him Fatty <laughs> because he's back and he's 184 pounds. He's never been 184 pounds in his life, and he's in full-time ministry. He's a pastor, and he's healthy as he can be, and he is about to have his first child in two weeks, and so I'll be a granddad again. Uh, yeah, it's just, it really is a praise to the Lord. All that to say, Six years ago, the Lord brought me to a place. This is after years and years and years. Campus ministry, preaching all over the world, starting churches, pastoring churches, 11 years at a seminary, understanding, uh, you know, hanging around some of the greatest academics and theologians in the world, still just hit and miss, you know, just no prayer. The Lord brought me to a place. Hard to explain, but one day in a living room with a friend of mine, my friend simply made an offhanded comment, and I knew right then and there the Lord was enabling me, empowering me to pray. And so I'm not here to tell you that I'm the greatest guy in prayer. I'm not here to tell you that I, that I have all the authority on prayer. But after I get up in the mornings and I cook my wife, breakfast which really is the result of prayer i'm not so sure that i'm not so sure that's true laura I'm not so <laughs> no, sure that's true. no it's entirely true laura <laughs> um I, one of the practical secrets for me is i i was diagnosed whether you believe i didn't believe in it either by the way 30 years ago i was diagnosed with adhd i'm the most fidgety restless easily distracted can't pay attention for squat. The moment I sit down, I would either be asleep or distracted. My prayer life just stuck. And I don't, I, don't, I don't know how to tell you this except to say, the Lord, for me, it's all about motion. I have to stay in motion. So I thought, okay, I'll just walk and pray. So I just, that's what I do. Rain, sleet, sunshine, below, you know, temperature, doesn't matter. Heat, doesn't matter. I'm in the elements, and I'm walking for hours, and I'm praying. And so for the last six years, uh, I've gotten to a place in my life that what's in Scripture, the text that's looking you in the face, that he's there, that he cares like you cannot possibly imagine, that he loves you, he is infinitely powerful. And the greatest joy of prayer is not what he will do in terms of answering those prayers, because he does. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I told Jesus 18 months ago, whether you heal my son or not, I'm still going to serve you. If you bring my son, if you take my son to heaven, I'm still going to serve you with all my heart. I would prefer that you didn't. You know, and sometimes I just look up to the skies and... and uh, I say, Lord, I, I, know I'm, I know you must be rolling your eyes, Jesus, and you're wondering why it's taking me so long, and I'm not even that great in prayer, but I know that you are there. And sometimes I wonder if the people in my town who see me walking around think I'm just talking to myself or I'm some loony because they see my lips moving. I'm not just praying thoughtfully. I'm talking to the Lord. Uh, one last thought. Uh, it was, the again, a some of the Puritans who used to say this, uh, pray until you pray. Just pray until you pray. And what did they mean by that? Yeah, here's what they meant by that. I can't tell you how many times when I get up, I don't want to pray. My flesh is so weak. I just don't want to. And sometimes I just go out there because it's my obligation. He's commanded it. It's my duty. And I'll spend the first 30 minutes, and I feel like I'm just talking to the clouds. Jesus seems as remote to me and uninvolved with my life 
But I just stick it out and stick it out. And then all of a sudden, it's as if I just step through a little door. And there he is, more real to me than anything in the world. Just pray until you actually are actually praying. The Puritans would say, you know, just pray until you have the felt nearness of God. Because there's no place that he's not. And so you're looking at a most unlikely candidate for a guy who would ever talk to you about prayer. Prayer does work, but the central heart issue of prayer is not for what he will give you. And he is a very generous God, very kind. The greatest thing about prayer is you get to actually commune with the creator of the universe. You get to dialogue with him. And Jeff's right, where he began his sermon today is... The Lord does speak, and his sheep do hear his voice. Thanks, brother. So there you have it. You have been encouraged. You have been admonished. Some of us have felt reproved by the Spirit today. Pray until you pray. I'll say this last thing in closing. Can I just tell you? Dennis came on as our Southeast Region Director. And... Uh, he had a new strategy. So he, he had to raise his own support. He had to get up to speed. It sometimes takes years. I'm just going to start praying. He was fully funded in a couple of months. Fully funded for the whole the whole region. It was ridiculous. People sending in checks and that. He wouldn't even add. Just, just funding. <laughs> Crazy. We struggled. I've hired so many different people in the South that we've struggled through the years to get any traction for some reason in the Bible Belt kind of thing for links, really. Dennis is like, I'm going to pray. I, well, yeah, of course we're all going to pray. You know. I'm going to pray. 20 new links fellowships in the first year. 20. And growing. And just we just hired, he just hired a Harry director. So, yeah, God listens. Pray for laborers and pray till you pray. I love it. We're going to close with this worship song. Uh, I'm going to head out. I'm going to have Dennis go with me. We'd love to shake your hand on the way out and uh, <coughs> love to shake your hand on the way out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, we're going to go out, and I don't know, the other pastors. Hey, we're so happy that you're here. Is it good to be? I don't know if this is the house of the Lord, but when we're here, it is. It may, turn, it may turn back into some kind of weird, you know, who knows what on these screens. But for now, it's the harvest. Let's close with this last worship song. Just, in, you know, just sing it to the Lord, and then we'll see you afterwards. Great being with you. We love you.